The picket lines have formed as more than 11,000 Hollywood writers head to the streets to fight for better wages and a whole lot more. How long will the walkout last and will your favorite shows be affected? Then we'll turn to Capitol Hill where Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, pushed back Republican criticism, accusing the union of working to keep schools closed longer than necessary during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is Weingarten trying to rewrite history? We look at the receipts. Finally, are you doing okay? Do you need to talk about anything? When was the last time you sat down with your friends and asked them these questions? According to the US Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, not enough. We look at the data behind America's newest epidemic, loneliness. All of this on today's episode of The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everyone. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, welcome to another episode of The Lost Debate. Uh, for our listeners, please continue to send in those voicemails, 321-200-0570. Uh, we're going to start today with this writer strike, which is dominating Hollywood. Day two of the Writers Guild of America strike is underway. The ripple effect really being felt across the entertainment industry. There are about 11,500 writers in the Writers Guild. 98% of them voted for this strike. That's why it's expected to see thousands of them here on the picket lines day after day until this ends. Studios request a few amount of writers to crank out the amount of work that would have normally been done in much more time. Late night TV shows, they will see the first impact. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for my writers and I support them all the way. They got to have a fair contract and they got a lot of stuff to iron out and uh, hopefully they get it done. So, Robbie, should I be concerned that my favorite shows are going to be put on pause over the strike? Well, uh, yes. Uh, so <laughs> the short answer is yes. You were really young during the last one of these, 2008, 2007, 2008. There was a, a yeah. strike that lasted a while and was responsible for atrocities like the West, uh, the uh, Friday Night Lights season two. Like if you go back and watch some TV shows from that era, you have a noticeable difference in certain seasons where the shows were horrendous. And mm. it also, a lot of people attributed the rise of certain reality TV shows like Jersey Shore and the sort of boom of reality TV to the writer strike because unscripted television, you can do it when there's not a writer strike. And so certainly if this writer strike continues and, and on one side you have the Writers Guild of America who are representing the writers and then you have the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers who you know represent the producers and the streamers, et cetera, uh, they're on opposite sides of this. They had weeks of negotiations that I wouldn't say they broke down because I was listening to an interview with John August, who's a, a successful writer who's part of the negotiating team. And he basically said they made a lot of progress. They cleared what he called the underbrush, but the largest sticking points are still yet to be resolved. Those sticking points include issues over pay, uh, issues over residuals, which is essentially if you're a writer and you write for a TV show uh, and the TV show eventually gets successful, can you... Uh, you know, access the like, you know, some of the like a royalty structure. Yeah, royalty structure. Transparency is a big issue, which we'll talk about. There's this issue of how writers' rooms are structured and then artificial intelligence. And so these are all big issues that are yet to be resolved right now. And this thing could stretch for months and maybe even longer, which means that, you know, we could be watching a lot of reruns. 
Mm. Well, good thing I don't really watch any TV, so this won't infect <laughs> me too much. But I actually didn't even know that this first strike had happened and that it was 100 days long. That's kind of incredible. I hope that that doesn't repeat history here. But already we're seeing um, Jimmy Kimmel is on reruns rather than new episodes. Um, SNL might not happen on Saturday. And Seth Meyers came on recently to say that these demands are not unreasonable. Um, adjusted for inflation over the past decade, the average writer's weekly pay is down 23%. Um, they're chanting things like no contracts, no peace. And a lot of the issues are just based on some of the structural changes that streamers have brought into, into the way that writing and production works in general. And I think like a, a general sense that there's kind of a gig economy. Um, it's a little more transient that the staff is is smaller, that the turnaround is quicker. Um, and just to give a, a bit of a comparison, um, someone working on a network show could expect to make around $131,000 uh, based on how often they would have to go in over the course of a year versus someone on a streaming show around 90,000. Um, and so a quote from their complaint is that there's that streamers have essentially created a gig economy inside of a union workforce, um, which is an definitely um, interesting growing pains as the world of, of TV and production changes, but also seems a little bit to me like not a unique issue necessarily. Like it sounds like the complaint of a taxi driver, maybe when Uber shows up on the block. You know, the, one of the key differences between a taxi driver though, and these writers is that the taxi driver and the Uber driver knows what is being charged for that ride. So there's complete transparency about the money at the table. And one thing that I think is the least talked about, most important part of this negotiation is the question of transparency. Right now, the WGA releases an annual report every year that you know breaks down, here's what our members are making, here's what the average pay is, et cetera. Uh, as part of that, the number of writers who are working at the guild minimums has gone from about a third to about a half in the past decade. So you know, writers are getting, even that minimum that they're trying to negotiate, more people are making that than ever before as a percentage. But the studios themselves are not releasing data. They know more than the guild members do, than the guild does. They know more than the employees. Uh, and because of a quirk in antitrust law, because they've formed this alliance of, uh, you know, the motion picture producers, they can share the data with each other. So potentially the producers in the studios know a whole lot about what people are getting paid right now, but that data isn't being released. And that's why I think transparency is going to be the largest sticking point because the directors who kind of killed the last strike. So in 2008, the Directors Guild was negotiating at the exact same time. And a lot of people think that they basically threw the writers under the bus. They negotiated a separate deal, put a lot of pressure on the writers to come to the table and agree to a deal. This time, a lot of people think that, and the directors are up next month for their rene renegotiation. That's their deadline. And a lot of people think that the directors and the writers have the same interest in transparency because there's all this money in streaming right now, all this money uh, in residuals that people don't even know how to monetize them because they don't know how much, you know, for instance, Netflix is making off of a given show. They don't know how much Amazon, Apple are making off of a given show. And the residuals for streaming are not like TV. The residuals for streaming, if you make, Ricky, a, a hit TV show, uh, based on your experience at the New York Post, but somebody else writes a, a equivalent TV show that gets 
you know, that that has 10% of the audience of yours, you both make the same residuals according to the Netflix uh, numbers. That's not how it works in traditional studios. And so people want some transparency over this data, both the directors and the writers. I think that's going to be a big sticking point here. Mm, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess a test case for that would be the rollout of New York's new salary transparency laws, um, which seem to have had a slight backfiring effect where um, it's it basically people are getting raises at lower rates is what early studies are showing um, because employers are are trying to like front and say, oh, I'll give you all this money, but then you know they're less willing to shell over more of you overperform. I'm not sure how that would necessarily shake out in this context. But Ravi, I know you're generally pretty anti-union. What's your <laughs> well this is an interesting do, one. Are you you, you seem actually, more sympathetic here. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um and and this is not why I'm sympathetic. I, I haven't decided whether to join this union or not, but I became eligible for the WGA this year because I hit their they have a, a point scale and I hit my twenty four points this year. Uh, just meaning like the amount of things I've been asked to write and get paid for it is essentially how they determine that. And I was I was making I was thinking of making a decision right in the past few months about whether to do this, and I just was too busy to figure it out. But I use the WGA for different things. So if I write a script, I I register it with them for copyright protection, et cetera. They're in, I, I find them to be a really useful um, service in that sense, and a, and a what they're asking for seems pretty reasonable to me. So maybe I like I, I can only imagine the accusations of hypocrisy here, but I'm generally <laughs> pro private sector union in general. My problems, as we'll come to in the next segment, have to do with when you have a monopoly over services. And um, I have experienced one part of this, which is also part of the, st the sticking points in negotiation, is this thing called mini rooms. So it used to be mm -hmm. that you write a pilot episode. And it still happens. Like if you're working with traditional networks, you write a pilot episode, they film a pilot episode, and then they determine whether they want to turn that into a TV show or not. Now they have these things called mini rooms. And among other things, they basically will flesh out several episodes at once. Uh, and then it might go to film or et cetera. They may keep like a smaller percentage of the writers around to write as they're filming, et cetera. This is a huge sticking point of negotiations uh, because even though the number of scripted series is growing over the past five years, it grew something like 15%. The number of writings working, writers working on TV have essentially stayed the mm -hmm. same. So they're basically get these studios are making do with fewer amounts of writers. And I've certainly seen this just in some of my conversations in the background. It's like, you know, you're trying to, if you're trying to sell a TV show to a network, et cetera, um, now as part of the negotiating process, they try to lock people in to write a few episodes at once on the front end, which is not how they used to do things. And so writers are getting pissed about that because it, there used to just be more of them at the table. They used to be able to work a lot more and they really prize being on set and having relationships with directors and um, producers and actors on set because that's the next stepping stone to becoming a showrunner. And if you foreclose that opportunity to writers, uh, they feel like they're going to get stuck in you know in these low paying jobs for the rest of their lives, or at least as these see it, low paying. Like you know, people can argue whether ninety thousand dollars is low paying or not, but they see it as low paying. Mm. And so another interesting wrinkle here is the debate over AI, which is like seems to be the first really formidable like pushback against it 
existing in an industry. Um, one of their complaints was that, quote, AI or their demands was that AI can't write or rewrite literary material, um, can't be used as source material, and that any um, MBA covered material can't be used to train AI. I have no idea how the I mean, even if they agree to these terms, how they can stop it from being used to train AI, they're not really in control of how that works. And AI is still not yet uh, fine-tuned to be able to determine whether something is copyrighted or not. Um, But I think this is potentially something that could make them, like by striking, could make shows default to using AI sooner than later because but potentially I mean, how how is that even workable in it's the not, end like I understand it and I'm I'm sympathetic to it as a journalist too I, it's not that I don't I'm not concerned but I'm not sure how you can demand that this never becomes a thing yeah I think I think this is the most important I think transparency and AI are the most important parts of this. I know a lot of people are going to say like the wage minimums and all that, obviously really critical. But when you talk about the future of the entire industry, the two things that are going to be decided here that will tell us a lot about what this industry looks like decades from now is whether they the guild gets the transparency stuff that they want because that will open up all sorts of things in negotiations that you can't get right now. And the second is this AI thing. If they win this concession that you cannot use AI, that will protect an entire industry from this disruption, at least in the United States. As we'll get to, the foreign element here is looming super large. Now, the question of whether this would push AI into the forefront right now I'm less bullish on that just because I think the quality of the AI isn't that good. Um, yeah. There's a uh, there's an interview with a Vox writer, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, on this uh, recently. Let's go to this clip. And I was thinking of, you know, if the writers go on strike, could this potentially expedite the use of AI and, and freeze them out even more? Could it backfire on them? I mean, it's very possible, right? Uh, the people that I've talked to have said, yeah, it could happen. Um, But there are some hitches here. One is that, um, you know, AI at the moment, the way the technology is, can't really distinguish between copyrighted material and non-copyrighted material, which means that anyone who tried to use generative AI to create a script could actually end up running afoul of copyright. There's also the issue that um, most of the tech is not quite advanced enough right now to spit out things that can just be taken straight to set and shot and that, you know, there wouldn't be any writer to help with that. So so you might end up with lots of unusable content. Um, You know, one thing that someone I spoke to said is, well, we can't really save people from that, making that choice. But it is true that people are going to notice the difference if they watch those things. And the aim of the guild is to make sure that a writer is a human. Yeah. So I'm with her on this one. I don't think it's going to happen right now. Like in the best, best use case of AI right now, you still need that writer to interface with it. And nobody's, people aren't crossing picket lines because then you'll be shut out. Yeah. Uh, later on, like you got to, th- you got to think about the dynamics here. Most of the showrunners are, are also members of the Screenwriters Guild, or at least a lot of them are, and they're very sympathetic. And so, people crossing picket lines now to, for instance, interact with AI or whatever, are going to be iced out after this whole thing is done. And you know, it's kind of like scab baseball players back during the, the baseball strike. So I, I can't see that happening. But there is a yeah, in the short term, I can't. But I think that banking on that as a strategy to say like, oh, without us, AI like AI sucks, and what are you gonna make at the moment? Like I can't even. 
it's been hard for me to wrap my head around the explosion of the advancement of AI just in the past couple months. Right. And the more that it, it gets trained on things, the better it gets very quickly. Like I'm already seeing on the internet, like AI generated commercials that you can apparently just like put in a sentence of like make a commercial for my XYZ company that emphasizes whatever attributes about it. And it, I mean, it's bad, but it's like, just a couple months ago, we were just generating like basic images. And now that's something that we can already do. And I, I mean, but this does remind me a little bit of a debate that we talked about a long time ago around artists who were saying that their their style and likeness was being mm-hmm. um, used in a way that certainly infringes on their creative um, copyright, but not literally. So it kind of feels a little bit similar, but I, don't, I just don't think this is a long-term solution. I think that AI is going to show up somehow in some way in this industry. Yeah. And and you have the the foreign element of this, right? So when you talk about, um, because you can, the guild represents largely American writers. And one thing that's really fascinating here is there are going to be some winners and losers if there is a strike. And one of the winners inevitably is going to be Netflix because they have so much foreign content right now. They've already Mm -hmm. said publicly that they have a year's worth of content and I think they were talking about American content that that they can put out during this strike. And um, they have so much foreign content. There are 18 versions of 90 Day Fiance. 18. So like just one dumb reality show. They have, and then they have tons of really good shows. And, you know, there are certain shows that have already made their way here, like Money Heist, foreign shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Narcos, if you want to count that as a foreign show, it's kind of a hybrid American foreign show. There's so many. If you've ever traveled and pulled up Netflix, there are tons of shows that we never see. So Netflix yeah. will be able to push this kind of stuff out um, pretty quickly. And, and full disclosure, Reed Hastings, who's the chairman of Netflix, is a uh, funder of the branch. But so that's one winner. They're going to be winners of this Um Unscripted TV, for sure, again, is going to be winners of this. And so, you know, might you might see like multiple love is blinds over the next year if they can't uh, come to a resolution here. Um, you're also like you're seeing certain behavior that might be linked to this uh, this strike. So, for instance, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, that merger and, you know, bringing HBO Max and Discovery Plus together into this thing called Max. Now, that might be totally accidental, that merger, but what's what that allows them to do is actually like access content from across a much wider swath and put it out and so you know maybe that was intentional so maybe like max for example will be putting out stuff that they didn't necessarily create themselves but now through that merger are allowed to do so you have all those people who might be winners there's a, also another hidden winner which is the producers here some of these production companies have contracts that they don't like. One famous contract is with J.J. Abrams, um, bad robot, famously bad contract apparently. But there are others that, you know, might be like they negotiated during like the heydays of the streaming wars with people like Shonda Rhimes and Greg Berlanti that are like some of these are like $100 million and don't make sense for the current economics. And a lot of these contracts have what they're what are called force majeure clauses, which allow the studios potentially uh, after a certain amount of days to, if there's a strike, to either jettison the contracts or renegotiate them. So there's some talk that certain studios stand to gain a lot by renegotiating those contracts. And so some of those people might have an incentive to drag this thing on a little longer than we might expect. And also people who are writing books that are coming out soon as well. Maybe people will replace their pastime from shows to 
reading some new literary content. I doubt it. I, I could see it <laughs> going the other way. I could see it I, going to like TikTok or, you know, attention. I can too. You know. But there's know. there's so much content out there. That's the thing. It's like this thing would have to really drag on for a long, long time for for people to straight up run out of content because there are lots of yeah. things that are out there. And honestly, like the pandemic, like the pandemic didn't affect stuff coming out right away. It affects stuff mm -hmm. coming out like six months to a year from now, given these these production schedules. And that's one, another reason, maybe this is a good way to end, like another reason why this thing could last a while is both sides have certain leverage. And the writers are trying to push the producers and studios into a corner around uh, fall TV lineups. And even though streaming is dominant, et cetera, fall TV lineups still matter a lot for people. And if they're not able to get on schedule to film and produce fall TV shows, that's going to lose a lot of money for a lot of these major studios. And so I think that's going to be, um, that's that's one of the incentives involved here and why this thing could push past a couple of weeks. So I'm, I think I'm a little pessimistic that this thing will be resolved anytime soon. Speaking of unions, should we talk about your your favorite type of unions, school teachers unions? Teachers unions, yes. Okay, so I, this this one caught me by surprise, Ricky. I, I did not expect uh, a week of Randy Weingarten content, but she's the leader of the the large second largest teachers union in the country, the AFT. She's definitely the most, which is the American Federation of Teachers. She's certainly the most prominent union leader in the country. And on Wednesday, April 26th, she appeared before the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. And in her testimony, she claimed that the union, quote, spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools. And quote, conservatives, Republicans are calling her remark hypocritical uh, because there is some evidence that the union fought hard to prevent schools from reopening. We will examine that evidence. Uh, Republican lawmakers allege that the AFT and the CDC were working together to keep schools closed. And so this is this has turned into a ongoing, pretty heated debate where Weingarten has appeared on TV multiple times defending herself. There have been a lot of heated back and forths. You know, there is a lot of heated rhetoric out there. Uh, Mike Pompeo, for example, had previously called Weingarten the most dangerous person in the world, Ricky. Do you agree? I wouldn't say in the world, but I would say I, I am generally on the side of this is revisionist history, and it seems like just a little bit of gaslighting um, from my vantage point. But I think before we even delve into tearing apart or taking questioning her, her claims. Let's hear what she said on Capitol Hill during this testimony. We spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools. Do you buy this? No, absolutely not. I mean, she has a really bad record of undermining efforts to reopen schools, um, consistently going back into 2020 and all the way through 2021, when I would say the landscape was very, very different. Um, in July of 2020, as the new school year was revving up, um, Trump and Betsy DeVos were both pushing for school reopening. She said, if Trump and DeVos want to create chaos, they will jeopardize reopening, which almost seems like a, a veiled threat. Um, she also called it reckless, callous, and cruel. 
And she said, their recklessness scared people so much that I now fear people will be basically opting out of teaching because they don't want to jeopardize their families. So she was very much in the camp of of rhetoric that was genuinely scaring people um, to the point that that summer here in New York City, there were protests where obviously she's not personally responsible for everything that and the way that people are individually protesting, but there were mock coffins and guillotines being marched through New York City streets, um, basically suggesting that we were sacrificing teachers. Um, in a, I, I mean, at, at this point in time, Essential workers are out in in the workforce. I mean, the it's essentially just the laptop class that's still inside by um, by August of this point in time. She used the excuse when she was on the the witness stand that she was in New York City and she was terrified by what was going on here, which I don't think is a. I mean, that's basically like saying my own emotional state impacted the way that I led a, a national issue that impacts hundreds of thousands of children. And this continued all the way until 2021, where um, in February, there was the Chicago Teachers Union um, basically shutting kids out of schools at a point in time where I think that it was just no longer even disputable that there were really negative impacts happening um, for children. I mean, the list goes on and on. In fall of 2020, DeSantis tried to reopen um, and she tweeted in a very celebratory way, huge judge strikes down Florida's reopening order, exclamation point. So, you know, that's that's the tone at a point in time where, where families, where parents, where commentators were looking on and saying, what is going on and why are the, the least at risk among us children bearing the brunt of a pandemic that obviously does not proportionately impact them? I think there's so much focus here on Weingarten, the person this week. And I get it because when you're a leader of the union and you make decisions for them and, you know, as somebody who's been on the other side of a lot of debates with her, like it's effective to be like, here's this person, let's put a lot of am- animus on her. But when I step back, she's doing precisely what her members pay her to do, which is to advocate for those interests. And I've said, I've long said this, when the interests of children go up against the interests of adults, the union leaders will always pick the interests of the adults. And that's what's happening here. There's a really fascinating interview uh, that David Leonhardt from New York Times did uh, with this guy named Shamik Das Gupta, who I believe is a philosophy professor from Berkeley, who's been critical of closures. And Das Gupta made an interesting point, which is, hey, I don't begrudge the unions for doing what they're doing. Unions are going to union. Now, there needs to be a person on the other side of this, like a group of people. Like we just talked about Hollywood. Hollywood has the producers on one side and it has the writers on the other side. In the case of a teacher's union, they have a monopoly over government services for kids. And ostensibly, the public officials are supposed to be the other side, but they're captured by the union. So the AFT gave an excess of $26 million to Democratic candidates and causes in the 2022 election. The First Lady, Jill Biden, taught at a public community college and herself and the NEA, which is the other union, the the union that represents community college professors and more rural teachers. She's a member of that union. Biden said, quote, I sleep with an NEA member every night. He was crowing about it. So, I mean, these (laughs) Democrats will talk about how captured they are by the unions. I've been in these rooms. I can attest to it. Obviously, there are exceptions. So the people on both sides tend to be captured by the unions. And every once in a while, 
a leader will step up and say no in urban areas. Uh, and those people will get crushed. Lori Lightfoot was one of those people who she stood up. She, mm -hmm. she fought hard. Um, and in part, she's now been replaced by a union member teacher in uh, Chicago. Now there's a lot going on there. It's not just because of this. And this Certainly is what she had to say this. about Randy Weingarten. Uh, former uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos responded to that, um, accusing her of revisionist history. You agree with DeVos? Well, what I will say is this. That may have been what Randy Weingartner was saying at the national level, and I believe that to be true. I had conversations with her at the time that lead me to believe that that's what she wanted to do. That's not the reality that was happening on the ground in cities like Chicago, like Los Angeles, and other places. Okay. We needed to get our kids back in school, and I'm unapologetic about the fight to make sure that we put our kids and our parents first. Yeah, so Weingarten is not... You know, she's the leader of the union, but she's also captured by the union itself. Yeah. So you, you could believe everything she's saying, which I don't believe everything she's saying. I do think there's more nuanced in certain ways, but by and large, like there's so much going on behind the scenes here, Ricky, that like, and this is why these, these, these hearings got so heated around like, you know, they were asking Weingarten, do you have the CDC director's number and yada, yada. The reason why this was happening is in part because Weingarten could say publicly anything. There's so much parsing. of Did she say this? Did she say that? Like when, when the th these things are going on behind the scenes, she's going to call Lightfoot and be like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like I want to try to get this done. And she's going to call her local union affiliate and say something else potentially. And we have no reason yeah. to know. So the actions speak louder than words. And the 74 conducted a study of relative learning loss in Democratic and Republican states and found that red states offered almost twice as much in-person instruction as blue states during 2020, 2021. You look at cities controlled by the AFT, they were way more likely to be closed longer than cities that weren't controlled by the AFT. Annenberg has showed this too over at Brown. Like I'm more interested in the results than what she was saying. And the results speak for themselves. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even though I do agree that she was technically doing her job, I, at the same time, it's like fundamentally betraying it's, it's using the, the select interests of the, the job of a teacher and fundamentally betraying the very purpose, which is to serve children in a way that I think was just inexcusable, even if that is her doing her job, the, the outward appearance that it seemed consistently that the interest of keeping schools closed was the predominant and prevailing one that was, you know, catered to in terms of the union. Like I know that there were tons of teachers who internally dissented from that um, and weren't really given the adequate choice to, you know, do what they want in terms of serving their children. And I, there were so many solutions that could have been made in terms of, you know, putting less at risk teachers in the classroom physically who wanted to go into the classroom. There were concessions that could have been made. And I understand like the, the, the fury that parents have um, looking at the learning losses now, looking at the amount of time that their children lost in classrooms and the impacts of that. I think it was really um, well kind of distilled in this face-off in CNN between Scott Jennings, who's a senior political analyst for them, and Weingarten, where he kind of went off on his own personal experience. I am stunned at what you have said this week about your claiming to have wanted to reopen schools. I think most, you'll find that most parents believe you were the tip of the spear of school closures. There are numerous statements you made over the summer of 20, scaring people to death about the possibility of opening schools. And I hear no remorse 
whatsoever about the generational damage that's been done to these kids. I have two kids with learning differences. Do you know how hard it is for them to learn at home and not in a classroom that was designed for them? And for you to sit in front of Congress and the American people and say, oh, I, I wanted to open them the whole time. I, I am shocked. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And there are millions of parents who feel the exact same way. Okay. Go ahead, Ryder. So I don't know you, sir, and you don't know me. But I have worked for the last 20 or 30 years helping kids every single day. I've been a school teacher. I've been a union leader. I knew and understood the importance of reopening schools and the importance of making sure that people were safe. And poll after poll that we did of parents, and I spent a lot of time with parents, said that they basically understood and supported that we needed to do both. I'm really sorry. You think parents about your wanted kids. to keep the kids? Nobody you, you wanted think to. Parents Nobody wanted to keep you kids at home. Kids. I just want to layer in one personal thing. Um, I'm going to take my own W here. But in 2021, in February, when this Chicago Teachers Union um, shutdown occurred, I wrote an article for the Daily Wire back when I was writing for them about the irreversible consequences of school closures. And I'm not saying that to like aggrandize myself. I'm saying it to say like I don't have any sort of special um, insight beyond what what I was just seeing on the ground in the news that I was reading and the reports that I was seeing. I cited multiple CDC reports that showed in North Carolina where schools were open that there was very low case transmission within schools. Um, I, I made the point that unions were uh, kind of captured by their political beneficiaries and vice versa. And I'm saying that only to say at that point in time, there's tremendous written record that contradicted the the prevailing narrative in the union world that teachers were at some sort of exceptional risk beyond what other citizens would be in doing their day-to-day -day jobs. And there was mounting evidence already by that point in time that there would be measurable and severe consequences for kids that were kept inside. And I, I just think that maintaining that record and maintaining that timeline and not allowing that to be breezed over by someone who might be saying something different outwardly, but maybe internally on the inside thinking, oh, maybe, maybe we should get these schools back open. Like it's just, it's not acceptable to me when we look at the, the clear record of growing mounting evidence that kids were going to bear the brunt of the burden here. You know, the, the most confusing part of all of this to me was the fact that the union fought, and I think they were right to fight for teachers to go to the front of the line to get vaccinations. I'm all for that. I think like frontline people generally, nurses, doctors, teachers, anybody who like we prioritize as a society should have been at the front of that line. And then they turned around and still didn't want to reopen schools in a lot of these places. I think it's one thing if you're in the middle of March, April, 2020, you know, mm -hmm. you, you take your W. I take, I don't, I don't even know if it's an L. At that point, I was pro school closing at first because I was reading this data from Nicholas Christakis about the Spanish flu saying that, hey, places that closed schools earlier during that I was pro school closure in the beginning as well, too. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like it seemed logical. By the time we get to the fall of 2020, everything. I'm like, yeah. 
it's like there's it, I, I feel very differently in the fall of 2020 and then you get to spring of 2021 and then I'm like, all right, there's no reasonable case here to keep schools closed. And then there are people advocating long after that for school closures and unions in certain cases like Chicago fighting it like so long that it's insane. And, you know, we've we've covered this when it comes to the San Francisco school board before. Uh, to put a number on this, there's a guy named Michael Hartney at Boston College. He estimates that about half of American children lost at least a year of full-time school. Now, if you if you think about that, right, we all, most people listening to this probably were fine in the spring or supportive of the spring of 2020 closing schools. How many of you were supportive nine months later, right? Not many. And I think that's part of the reason why the unions are in trouble right now, why you're seeing things like ESA bills passing, education savings accounts bills passing yeah. throughout the country, why there's a lot of polling data out there that, you know, this data is always parsed weird, but there's some data to suggest that Americans have less faith in public schools than they have in a long time. You know, I think this is a real threat to to the unions, which is why Weingarten feels the need to make, you know, make the rounds in, in the yeah. cable TV shows. And one final thing that I'll just layer in here, I think there was the initial frustration of being able to look at, you know, we we had an ongoing experiment essentially with a bunch of different countries doing a bunch of different things and looking at how other countries are doing and analyzing that comparatively was the first thing that we could have done to say, maybe this isn't necessarily as high of a transmission risk as we thought, because originally I think that the idea was that because kids are not as impacted by COVID that they might be Mm -hmm. more likely to just be like carriers spreading it around. But that turned out to not be as much the case as we thought it would be. But then the far more infuriating part that I don't think is even talked about near enough is how public schools with private schools across the street from them were shuttered while kids that yep. whose parents could afford to pay to go to school were going to school, were not dying in unprecedented numbers. And certainly if that was the case or if teachers there were under some sort of undue stress beyond what a typical American citizen was facing, that would have reverse course. And yet the teachers unions effectively won out in keeping kids whose parents couldn't afford those alternative options home and struggling. And those are arguably the kids that could least afford to take these learning hits and losses. Yeah. And I'll, I'll recommend for our audience, we'll put in the show notes, this episode we did about the San Francisco school board, because this is a particularly insane version of this, where the school board was holding hearings on renaming school buildings because they felt like Abraham Lincoln and Dianne Feinstein's name shouldn't be on buildings because they were too racist. So they're holding these hours and hours long uh, hearings into the spring of 2021 while frustrated kids are going on these Zooms, like these Zoom school board meetings being like, hey, can we talk about school reopening? <laughs> and so like, we'll, we'll link to that. We start the episode actually with one particular student who just basically chastises the school board as if she's the parent. Let's shift gears, Ricky. Let's talk about loneliness. It's not trendy Thursday, but we've got some worrying trends here. Where should we start? Yes. um, As of Tuesday, the Surgeon General has officially declared loneliness in America as an epidemic. Um, Half of Americans, according to this report that he um, declared on the basis of, are reporting that they are lonely, especially younger people, far more likely to than older Americans. Um, This has gone up every year since 1976, and it's crystallized in a way that's really frightening in terms of 18 to 24-year-olds, 79% report loneliness versus 
65 plus, just 41%. So it's a, everyone's going up, but the generational gaps are also widening as well. And younger Americans are feeling the brunt of it. So let's hear from the Surgeon General about why this is now a modern day epidemic. This has been building um, now for decades. Uh, we've in fact seen a decrease in participation in community organizations uh, and faith organizations and recreational leagues over several decades. We've seen that technology has fundamentally changed uh, how we interact with one another and how we communicate with one another and unfortunately has often replaced what used to be rich in-person connections uh, with online connections which often are of lower quality. And finally, we see that people are, are just experiencing tremendous change in their lives. They're moving more, they're changing jobs more often, uh, and that can disrupt a lot of our social relationships. It's not that these trends are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but what we have to do now in modern life is intentionally build in the infrastructure we need for connection in our individual lives as well as in our communities. Yeah, he's been talking about this well before he was Surgeon General. I just pulled up my notes this morning from this book called How to Live Forever, which is about the loneliness epidemic, in part about the loneliness epidemic among older adults and like the nursing home industry and what we do about all that. And I found a quote from him in that book from back then before he was Surgeon General. And so this is something he clearly cares a lot about. I, I agree with his assessment of the problem. I'm not sure that the federal government can do a whole lot here. You look through their their recommendations. I applaud him for pointing this out. I just think that this is going to yeah. have to be a bottom-up solution. Yeah, I agree. I mean, some of the solutions that they're offering up are very vague and not necessarily actionable, in my opinion, including um, strengthening social infrastructure in communities, pro-connection public policies, reforming digital environments, um, deepening our knowledge about the issue, cultivating a culture of connection. Like I am sympathetic to the fact that I think these are all true um, and probably good goals for society, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily something that the federal government could or should enact. And in fact, I think if they tried to, it would probably get kind of dystopian and weird pretty fast of like, let's have forced government community mm -hmm. time now. <laughs> um, I'm not, yeah. I'm not convinced that that would work. But um, one thing that I've, I've been thinking about a lot on this front is the the generational difference and how my generation should it should theoretically be the most connected generation but that screen connection is standing in for like actual connection with people and this is something that I would like get into spats with my mom about all the time and I didn't really know why she would take exception to the fact that like I would say oh I just talked to Vanya and she said this and my mom would be like did you talk to her or did you text her and I'm like Oh yeah, I texted her. I'm like, why is that a big deal? But now I see. I mean, it. It. I think that there is a a generational trend to to feel like the um the interaction that you have through a screen with someone is an adequate substitute, like maybe like a zero calorie sweetener or something that feels mm -hmm. like the same thing, but it's really not, and potentially not that good for you in the end. And I I think we're filling up our social batteries often that way and feeling like we're doing fine and therefore we can not go out or not actually see someone in person, but that's really backfiring. Um, so it makes sense to me that as, as screen time is going up, young people are struggling more and more disproportionately. I think, I think there are two, you know, you talk about government intervention and I, and I think about this generational thing you're talking about. There is an interesting, and this is actually, this was in part laid out in that book, uh, How to Live Forever, but also this is a book by Otul Gawande called being mortal. 
And Atul Gawande in that book talks about, he says that old age has changed from a shared multi-generational responsibility to more or less a private state, something experienced more or less alone or with the help of doctors and institutions. And he was focusing particularly on the loneliness epidemic of older Americans. And in that book, he talks about all this data that shows that if you if you solve just the loneliness issue of a lot of people late in life and actually uh, you know, downshift the medical interventions, they live longer than if you just mm-hmm. focus on the medical interventions and don't solve the loneliness issue. So that's how powerful yeah. the loneliness stuff is. But he also, um, in that How to Live Forever book, they talk about the Singapore government. So you talk about government interventions. This will never happen in the US, but they have built these multi-generational housing units where they put together old and young people and incentivize them to cohabitate and solve each other's problems, right? So like childcare issues, et cetera, right? And some of that is just cultural too. Like you look at a lot of other societies, you know, you have multi-generational households, something that we've talked about. So that's one way the government could get involved. I don't see it happening here, but it has in other countries. Another thing, which could be government or could be nonprofit, potentially even for profit. This is this is this may be a rebirth of the Ravi's radical ideas segment. Oh, but God. I, I think it would be interesting. Public if, defecation. You know, I think this one might be a little, a little less bit more lonely. Popular. You'd have intimate content, contact and people are going to know what you're people. talking about. But okay, so the my here's my radical proposal here is that we should create two year long stints. You know, almost like the, what Mormons do, um, send kids off. But we should have these two year long. Uh, this could be part of like um, national service, which is something I've talked about before. Where where kids go off, they 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 after college or before college, you do it, and not none of this would be forced. We just incentivize it. Where you go off and you solve some societal problem, but you do it completely digitally detoxed and or very like reduced digital footprint, like the bare minimum you need to do your job and nothing else, and you spend those two years not being wired into the internet. I think that could be really powerful. Why can't you You're just? Not sold. I mean, I think, why can't you just decide to do that for yourself? Why do, why do we need well, like, a government like, program to well, do this it? Gets, well, th- th- that's the whole thing. Like, you're talking about doing things in isolation. And I think part of what Murthy is saying is like, well, he's talking about from the government perspective, but in order to solve loneliness yeah. problems, we need collective solutions. We can't just rely on people. I think to we need a collective understanding decisions. of some of, of the fact that this is an issue, which I give him credit. He's bringing attention to it. I think we need collective understanding of the fact that like there are, there, there could be some serious contributing factors like a loss of community time and, and community space and an increase in, sc- in screen time. I do think that these are things that people are noticing a lot more now and talking about a lot more post-pandemic. And I do think that there is probably some grassroots potential to like even just the way that people are raising their kids to make sure that they have they have more community time to, wor- to worry about screen time in a way that I don't think parents worried about screen time when I was growing up um, and we didn't have the same cautionary tales. I, there's new conversation about banning social media um, for children under a certain age. Like I do think that there, that is government intervention, but I do, but there are more parents that are doing, doing that on their own proactively. I do think that like starting a conversation about why this is happening and how we can reverse some of the trends um, is healthy, but I don't know that we necessarily need like the government to roll in and be like, let's, Let's all hold hands and and hurrah. I don't know. That's not what I'm saying. But also it could be a nonprofit, right? Like it could be the equivalent yeah. of, you know, outward bound, longer version of the program where I mean, you know, people decide to mean, colleges could that. start enacting 
like certain policies that might be helpful on that front. There's just one more article here. I just wanted to layer in. This is uh, from Isabel Fatal, I think her name is. Uh, this is uh, in the Atlantic called America's Intimacy Problem. And she basically looked at this data around uh, there's, if you've ever been on uh, people out there who've been in the dating world recently know that one of the questions that you're going to get most likely is what's your attachment style? And it all has to do with this book about the four attachment styles. And what's your attachment style, Ravi? We won't go there. Uh, <laughs> I I'm think it's, secure. Thank I think it's quite asking. obvious to anybody who knows me that well. <laughs> I, universally, if you polled my friends, they will say the same one. There's a secure attachment style, right? Which is the one we kind of want as a society. And this is you know, a description from the article. People with a secure style feel that they can depend on others and that others can depend on them too. Those with a dismissing style, which is called avoidant, are overly committed to independence and don't feel they need much deep emotional connection. Now, over the past decades, researchers have noticed a decline in secure attachment style and an increase in dismissing and another one called fearful attachment styles. Uh, so that's happening alongside the fact that distrust in institutions is happening, which is something we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but also distrust in individuals is also on the rise now. So people, it's a common refrain to say that we distrust, you know, these, these sort of faceless institutions, et cetera, and the cure for that is more time with people. But people are starting to mistrust, distrust other people more than ever before too. And so when you layer that in with the loneliness data, this is kind of a toxic combination. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that's kind of interesting, um, we talked about my article I wrote about boys a while ago, and there seems to be in terms of like the number of close friends that people are reporting, um, half of Americans say that they have three or less. And that's disproportionately the case with young men. Um, I've thought about why that might be, because um, obviously the screen time thing is a similar problem for young men and young women. But one idea or kind of untested theory that I have on this front is that I do feel like girls tend to use their screens in a more social way and checking on social media and texting their friends versus screen time with young men can be um, kind of going down the, the drain with video game use and porn use and stuff like that that is inherently entirely antisocial versus social media, more social connection, sort of female proclivities. But um, yeah, I don't know, just one other potential factor here. And Ravi, the, these trends actually have legitimate consequences in terms of health. Yeah, I talked a little bit about what Gawanda had to say. The Surgeon General you know, makes this even more pointed in his report. He talks about uh, loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 26% and 29% respectively. Poor insufficient social connection is associated with increased risk of disease, including 29% risk of heart disease and 32% risk of stroke. Um so like, and there's just more data like this, but essentially loneliness, people could talk about causation, correlation, et cetera, but mm -hmm. it's associated with all sorts of bad health effects. And so we need to do something about this. So listeners, join my new, I don't know what we're going to call it, deto digital detox corpse, and we'll solve this problem together. So that's my solution. Corpse. Corpse. Almost like, you know, Teach for America corpse. Yeah, core, I'm hearing core, it like C-O-R-P-S-E. Is that how you say core? Core? Peace core? core. Peace corp? Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, Digital detox yeah. core. Well, I mean, you can, I'm, I'm down for you to start like your private version of it, but I can see a really hellish government run version that's akin to the DMV. So I'm not, I'm not setting up for that one. I don't know how we're going to do this podcast when I, when I join my own core. Yeah. Mm. We'll have to 
do it I'll by have telephone. To just swing it solo. We'll have to do it over like a traditional telephone line or something. All right. Well, I think that's all we have today. Uh, sorry to end on such a depressing note, but just get out there. Why don't you call in and give us your idea for solutions? There you go. What is it? Three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. I'd like to hear some some positive glimmers of hope. How's that? Great. Well, thank you, everybody. We'll be back next week on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. The Lost Debate is the flagship show from The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Metherell. <laughs>